Hey friends, Tyler here with a special announcement for pastors and ministry leaders. On May 7th and 8th, Bridgetown Church will be hosting a pastor's gathering for ministry leaders and other pastors uh, around the theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a postmodern context. We're going to tackle themes like listening prayer and prophetic ministry, creating a culture of response and encounter. And we want to do so among like-minded leaders ministering in a similar context who are going after the same things. So if that's you and that sounds interesting to you, Come and join us on May 7th and 8th. Registration is live right now, and you can find more information at, at the website that is dedicated to this, bridgetown.church training. Hope to see you in May. Romans chapter 12. I'll start in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, friend. Good morning, everybody. For the record, I gave up my seat because there's not a lot of people here. I do pray in the half lotus each morning because it's very helpful for deep breathing, but I pray to Jesus, uh, just to clarify all of that, to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Good morning. It is so great to be with you. Before we get in, uh, I just have to say we miss you terribly. Um, We moved back home to California six or seven months ago, and there's lots of great things about it. Um, Winter, it turns out, is not a global phenomenon. (laughs) And uh, we live near the ocean, and I go surfing with my sons every Saturday morning. I just want to rub that in just a little. There are other options, just to clarify. No, not helpful at all. But um, honestly, from the outside, I'm sure that sounds dreamy. From the inside, there's been a season of so much grief and loss. And we miss you so much. You know, they say, you never know what you have till it's gone. And while I think we had a basic grasp of how blessed we were to be with you for so many years, um, we're just more aware now than we've ever been before, just how good we had it. And life's like that, huh? You're just, we're busy, we're all, half of us are in survival mode and just trying to get through this thing to the next thing to the next. And it's so easy to lose sight. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Um, Your life, no matter what kind of season you're in, I bet you it's still full of goodness and mercy. So we miss you all, we carry you in our heart, we love you, we pray for you, Um, we love and respect you and Tyler and the leaders. Tyler, though, a little bit of a problem. So let me let you into the inner life of a of former pastor. Um, so when you step down from a church, you want it to do well because, you know, you want to have a legacy. But you don't want it to do too well. You want it to kind of go down about 10%. If you're not as godly as me, 20%. For me, it was about 10 to 12, you know? Just so you like, people miss you, you know? 
so the way I feel about Tyler is kind of like that scene in the Christmas movie Elf, you know, where the manager walks into the department store in the morning and Buddy redecorated it all. <laughs> and you remember his line? He's like, you see this? It's pretty good. It's a little too good. I think somebody's gunning for my job. So that's how I feel about Tyler Staten. But anyway, it is my joy to be back with you. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. Romans 12 is kind of our meta-level text for the next two weeks, but John chapter 8. Let's start off with a little Nietzsche. I've been out for a while. I've not been preaching, and I just thought I would kind of warm you up and start off on a positive note. Born in 1844 in Germany, he was really the first philosopher to call Darwin's bluff. In 1859, when Nietzsche was still a teenager, Darwin published his landmark work, Origin of the Species, in which he proposed the idea that the universe was not necessarily designed by a loving God of wisdom and good intentions, though there are actually hints of theism all through that book but how it was interpreted by later generations surely was. This is not the byproduct of a, the beautiful mind of a creator God, but rather of time and chance, and more specifically, a process that he called natural selection, or the survival of the fittest. From Darwin's theory came the idea of nature red in tooth and claw, a totally new vision of the kind of universe we find ourselves in. His theory, as you know, has gained wide acceptance in the Western world, though there are a quiet but growing number of scientists who are questioning what many now assume to be truth. Prior to Darwin, many of the leading scientific minds in the world were pastors, at least in the West. Darwin himself was an ardent believer in Christ and studied for the ministry before he lost his faith. Though surprisingly, quite a few historians think he came back to God late in life, and there's a case that he denied his own theory of evolution. Shortly after Darwin's death, Nietzsche was really the first thinker to follow Darwin's theory through to its logical conclusions. Okay, if there is no creator in creation, just nature, which ironically is always capitalized as if it is a person, and scientific laws, then there is no meaning or purpose to life beyond the propagation of the species, in which case... All morality is a social construct. At best, and this was Nietzsche and many of the Enlightenment thinkers' view, at best it's to hold off kind of, to hold society together and stave off anarchy. At worst, if you follow the development of thought later into the French thinkers, it's how the powerful keep hold over the powerless. Nietzsche himself hated Christianity because he believed it was a powerful lie by which the weak oppressed the strong inverting what he saw as the natural order of things where the strong prey on the weak and weed them out of the genetic pool to move evolution forward. It comes as no surprise that Nietzsche's ideas were later the foundation of the ideology of the Third Reich, particularly his idea of the Ubermensch or the Superman, which fueled the Nazis' ideas of Aryan supremacy and was used to justify the Holocaust. Of course, Nietzsche was utterly brilliant and had quite a few good things to say but it comes as no surprise that he was not a happy man. And in 1889, at just about my age, he suffered a psychotic break. For the last decade of his life, he was virtually mute, locked inside his sister's home, lonely, scared, writing letters to his friends, which he either signed the crucified one or Dionysus, the name of a Greek god, confusing himself with both. 
From a Christian perspective, it is highly possible that he was demonized. In one of his earlier books, he boasted that on his deathbed, he would give a speech to his adoring fans and his closing last words would be, now I die and I vanish into the nothing. But instead, his last words were apparently, mutter ich bin dumm, or mother, I am dumb. A fascinating end for the man who said God is dead. How we doing? You miss me? <laughs> Daylight savings and Nietzsche. You're like, I did not come here to learn about Nietzsche. I came here to learn about Jesus. Stay with me. This is all set up. Uh, the black diamond, that, that thing. Now, let me tell you a story about a very different mind, that of another philosopher, Dallas Willard. I've been listening to the podcast, and Tyler is a world-class preacher. I have one criticism. There is a conspicuous absence of regular quotes from Dallas Willard. <laughs> Where is my legacy in this church? <laughs> Willard was a professor at the University of Southern California and an expert in the field of phenomenology, but he's better known to people like us for his writings on spiritual formation. Just after he died, I got the chance to visit his widow, Jane, at their home. And there's a man that sold who knows how many books. To call the home modest would be the understatement of the day. Got to sit and visit with her just north of LA. And it's amazing to hear people who knew him well talk about not his writings or his mind, but his life, his joy, his gentleness. Had the chance to meet his daughter, Becky. John Ortberg, that some of you would know, was mentored by him for many, many years, said to me, he was the most intelligent person I've ever met, and his life was more beautiful than his mind. As Willard was dying of pancreatic cancer, which is a very painful kind of form of the disease as far as I understand, he refused any narcotics or pain medication because he wanted to be fully alert for his passage into eternity. He had written in depth about consciousness and the transition from this life to the next and had theorized that for the Christian, you know, he had some kind of quip, it was like you might not realize you've died for a while because his theory was that your mind or your consciousness could possibly continue on in an unbroken stream into the full presence of God. So he refused drugs and he called a few close friends to his bedside to narrate his experience as he was dying. He began to feel, he said, like he was two places at once, in his bed and on the threshold of heaven. At one point, he said, I, I see like heaven open and I feel more love coming toward me than I ever thought possible. And at the very end, his breath caught, his eyes lit up like he was seeing something and his last words were, thank you. Two men, both philosophers, both brilliant, both names we'll be talking about 200 years from now. One suffered a psychotic break and his last words were, mother, I am dumb. The other, thank you. A living example of what the New Testament writer James called power, love, and a sound mind. These two stories illustrate the power and the potential of the human mind for good or for evil. As Milton famously said in Paradise Lost, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. The mind has a power unlike anything in all of the universe to free your whole person to the heights of human possibility or to drown and imprison you in a living hell. 
We are in week three of a six-part teaching series called God and the Whole Person, Soul, Mind, and Body in His Image. Tyler asked me to cover the mind over the next two weeks, and basically through the grid of three basic questions. One, what does it mean for a mind to be made in the image of God? Two, how has the fall to sin deformed our mind? And three, what has Jesus done to heal and save our mind from sin? And I would argue there's a fourth kind of follow-up question, what do we need to do to open our mind to Jesus' healing power? To start off, let's just define what we mean by the mind really fast. You could argue that our mind is what separates us from the animals. Of course, this is an area of sharp disagreement between Christian thought and Darwinian materialism or secularism. We believe that to think of humans as homo sapiens or as simply highly evolved animals is a fundamental miscategorization of the human person that is not based on science but on an ideological interpretation of the data points of science. But whatever categorization of the human person you accept, animal or not, there can be no doubt that what separates us from other animals is not just our prefrontal cortex and opposable thumbs, but our mind. And to clarify, at least the way that I'm planning to use it over the next two weeks, the mind is not the same thing as the brain. The psychiatrist Jeffrey Schwartz and the neuroscientist Rebecca Gladding of UCLA, in their book, You Are Not Your Brain, define the mind as directed attention and argue that you can use your mind, your directed attention, what you choose to think about, to change your brain, to rewire your neurobiology and your body itself. Our mind is the capacity in all of us that is arguably immaterial to choose where we put our attention, what we allow to flow in and out of our consciousness. In philosophy, it's closely connected to the concept of the will. Many thinkers, from philosophers like Willard to psychologists like Viktor Frankl, who pioneered logotherapy out of his experience at Auschwitz, to the positive psychology movement and thinkers like Laurie Santos of Yale, argue that our mind is the greatest area of freedom we have, the freedom to choose what we do or do not think about. No one, not even the horrors of a concentration camp, can take that away from you or me. And yet, the mind often becomes the place of our greatest bondage. All over the streets of this city that we love are living examples of people trapped inside the prison of their own mind. Because the mind, what we think about, what we give our attention to, what we focus on is like the portal to our whole being. It plays a crucial role in the development of our overall person, either into people of health and wholeness, or sickness and demise. In other words, it is the linchpin of our spiritual formation. To the point, the Apostle Paul can summarize the entirety of the spiritual journey in one line, do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this is a bit tricky to nuance out because a core idea at Bridgetown Church and with Practicing the Way is that our discipleship to Jesus must be holistic. It must take into account our emotions and the body itself and the relational sphere that we call home and the memories that we carry in our body from our earliest years, incorporating the healing of things like trauma, attachment, the body's alarm system, and much more. But also, a core idea with that is that the enlightenment, of which Nietzsche was a, a very much a part, overemphasized the power of information to change people. 
a fatal flaw that we see live on both outside the church in the Western educational system and inside the church in most discipleship models to this day. But we all know this to be true. Information alone is, enough to yield, is not enough to yield transformation. If it was, we could just read a couple of really good books and we'd be done. One in-depth study through scripture, done. Let's just go live it now, if only it was that easy. But that disclaimer aside, I would argue the problem is less with the overemphasis on the mind in the West and more on the underemphasis on the whole person. The mind is utterly crucial. We see this very clearly in the teachings of Jesus. For example, right here in John chapter eight. Take a look if your Bible is open at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Okay, to the Jews who had believed in him, who had put their trust in him as a rabbi and more, to them, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, my ideas about reality, you really are my disciples, mathetes in Greek, or my apprentices. The sign of a true follower of Jesus, a student of learning about life in the kingdom of the heavens from him, is over against cultural Christians, be they of a right variety, or more likely in our city, of a left variety, is they hold to they don't let go of, they don't walk away from, they stand with, no matter the opposition, Jesus' teachings, his truth-telling, his ideas. So apprenticeship to Jesus has something to do with hearing Jesus' teaching and holding to it. And then Jesus has that bombshell line, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Riffing on this line, the novelist David Foster Wallace has a character in his book, Infinite Jest, quip, the truth will set you free, but not until it's done with you. Because of the tension that Jesus is getting at, in saying that the truth will set us free, Jesus was simultaneously saying that we're in bondage to lies. Now, let's take a step back and just for about five or 10 minutes, talk about the nature of truth and lies. For those of you that were around a number of years ago, we did an entire teaching series on this, so forgive me for the review, it's at Tyler's request. And it is still the best way I know just to blame Tyler on the next boring part. <laughs> it's still the best way I know to frame up the role of the mind in our spiritual formation. This will not take long. Um, what is truth? A question asked by Pilate to Foucault to now. The best definition I know of truth is reality, or that which corresponds to reality. And the best definition I know of reality is what you run into when you are wrong. If I say, um, I believe I can fly and I walk off the stage into the air, reality is what I will hit just a minute later and sprain my ankle, or I am 42, almost 43, maybe break my leg, I don't know. <laughs> Starting to feel it in the morning, I'm like, shoot, I thought this was another decade or two later, I guess not. Um, hence cliches like a dose of reality or the cold, hard truth. When we say that's a lie, we mean that doesn't correspond to reality. Um, we're raising three teenagers right now. Pray for us. Why don't you fast for us too? That would be great. And a while back, we just decided our boys share a room. Neither of them inherited the generational sin and perfectionism from me. Not a problem for them at all. And so we finally decided about six months ago to just, you know, pick your battles. Like, what hill are we going to die on? We just decided a clean room. 
I'll let your spouse deal with that one day. I'm not gonna die on that. Sorry, future spouse. I'm not gonna die on that hill. So, all right, house stays clean. Your room is your room. Just keep the door closed, all right? Now, you would think that with teenage boys, 14 and 17, it would kind of reach a tipping point. At some point, they'd want clean clothes. They'd wanna be able to see the floor. They'd wanna not smell like the dog. You'd think, I mean, those girls are involved now. You'd think they'd reach a tipping point. So far, no tipping point. So now we've augmented the plan. Once a month, they, like, we come in and we're like, all right, you have to at least clean till we can see the floor and the laundry can be done. And every time I go in there, which is once a month, I just dread it all month long. <laughs> there are just wet towels on the floor. Wet towels. Who throws a wet towel on, the, on top of the dirty clothes that they're then going to wear? And I'm like, listen, 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 all right. Messy room, your thing mold that I have to pay to remove, my thing. No wet towels, all right? New rule, no wet towels. Who would think? Why do we need rules? Like, this is a whole sermon series on the book of Genesis. But <laughs> all that to say, there's inevitably this blame game when I walk in. Who left the wet towel on the floor? It was Jude, it was Moses. When Moses says, it wasn't me, Jude's lying, what he means is Jude's claim does not correspond to reality. I was not the one who left the wet towel. And the answer, of course, is they both left multiple wet towels on the floor. That's the truth. But my point is, truth is reality. Lies are unreality. Now, just stay with me. We all live from what psychologists call mental maps of reality. We have literal mental maps, uh, like this morning. I did not need to use my phone to get here because although still in my home, and my phone, I realized you know, it has like the, the work I realized, oh, it's still here. So I had a moment of sadness. Uh, but I did not need to click on work because I know where Bridgetown Church is and I know how to get here and I know the city. I have a mental map in my mind. Now, if our mental maps are right to get to work or our coffee shop or the gym, we get in our car or on our bicycle or whatever and however many minutes later, we arrive at our destination. If our mental maps are wrong, we're like wandering around Gresham, like where? are we? I don't even know anymore. And in the same way that we have mental maps for how to get to work or the grocery store or a friend's house, we have mental maps for all of life, for money, for sex, for power, for identity, for relationships, for food, for drink, for drugs, for we have mental maps for everything. And our mental maps are no more than a collection of ideas. What are ideas? Assumptions about reality. Assumptions about how life actually works and mostly about what is the route to happiness. Happiness itself is an idea. Politics is an idea. Justice at some level is an idea. Theology is a collection of ideas. And every day we navigate this dizzying, kind of pluralistic world of ideas. And our ideas coalesce to form a kind of overall mental map by which we navigate life. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The wonder of the human mind is our ability to hold ideas in our mind that correspond to reality and ideas that do not correspond to reality. Put another way, to envision what is and what isn't. One word for this is the imagination. This is the core difference, arguably, between us and the animals, including those like dolphins and whales with highly evolved prefrontal cortexes. 
our capacity for imagination. As far as we know, we are the only creatures who have the capacity to hold what is not in our mental dock. This is what enables pretty much everything you see around you, all of human civilization. It's what enables us to bake a cake, to start a business, to write a novel, to preach a sermon, to have a conversation. It's why animals have speech, but they don't have language. They have noise, but they don't have sound. They have relationships, but they don't have civilization. We have the ability to hold in our mind and imagination something that does not exist, and then through our bodies, turn that idea into a reality. That is arguably central to what it means to be made in the image of God. This is the seedbed of so much. But tragically, this capacity to hold unreality in our mind is our genius, but it's also our Achilles heel. Because not only can we imagine unreality, we can come to believe or trust in unreality and ideas that are, put very simply, lies. It's been said that we live at the mercy of our ideas because the ideas that we believe in our mind give shape to what we do with our bodies and as a result, the people that we become. When we believe truth, we show up to reality well. We show up to our body, to our sexuality, to our relationships in a way that is congruent with reality and with God's good intentions toward us. As a result, we tend to thrive. But when we believe lies, that are not congruent with reality and the wisdom of the creator God's design. And then tragically, when we allow those lies into our bodies, we open up our whole person to a cancerous disease that the biblical writers call sin, the end of which is death. The most extreme example of this is something like is mental illness and is something like paranoid schizophrenia, which we see, again, play out every single day when we drive through the city where a mindset in unreality has brought ruin to a soul. They are in hell now, never mind on the later. The cold, hard truth is that our mental maps are often wrong, horribly wrong at times, and lead us not to life but to death. Hence, Jesus, back to the story. Verse 33. They don't take to what Jesus said at all. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall set, be set free? Uh, not a little bit of irony there. We have never been slaves to anyone. Like if you read your founding story in Exodus, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. Verse 39, Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you were looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do things like that. You are doing the works of your own father. Hold that for a minute. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. And uh, illegitimate children is a very G-rated English translation of a Greek word that is more likely to be heard on the streets of our city, right? It means the same thing. We are not, imagine. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. 
for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. And he's not referring to like problems with their hearing, but to what he in another spot calls hardness of heart. They are unable or unwilling to hear. You belong, and take a look at this, 44, we're just about done. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And the story goes on. Notice three, I wish we had more time, but notice three very simple but provocative ideas from Jesus here. One, for Jesus, there is a devil. He does not laugh off the idea of the devil as most people do today as a kind of pre-modern myth or you know, kind of for the uneducated or the superstitious. For Jesus, the devil is an invisible but real animating force behind the evil in our soul and society. The psychologist M. Scott Peck defined the devil as a real spirit of unreality. Secondly, the devil's end goal in Jesus' frame of things is to, quote, murder, to kill, to stamp out all life and love, to drive the human soul and society itself over the abyss. But three, and this is the one that to me is not intuitive, the devil's means is lies. He was a liar from the beginning, What memory does that language of from the beginning conjure up for you in a biblical imagination? Genesis 3. Jesus is saying that the devil is one and the same as the creature personified as a snake in the Garden of Eden story. If you remember that story, when the snake comes at Eve with malevolent intent to ruin her and all of humanity, he does not come in the story with a sword or a spear or an AK-47, but with an idea. More specifically, with a deceptive idea that we would call a lie, you will not surely die. This is the lie at the back of all lies. Essentially, God cannot be trusted. His word is not true. He does not have your good in mind. Redefine good and evil, not based on what God has said, but based on the voice in your head and the desire of your heart, and do your own thing. This is the temptation behind all temptation. No matter what the temptation is, trace it down. That is the root. Ignatius of Loyola defines sin as unwillingness to trust that what God wants for us is only our deepest happiness. What voice you trust, the voice of your loving creator God or another voice, will determine everything about your life. My point is that evil is utterly dependent on deception for success. We see this in a general sense with, again, what the biblical writers call sin. The evil one's agenda, according to Jesus, is to murder, to kill. And it is written, I think of Romans here, the wages of sin is death, meaning sin kills. Notice the line is the wages of sin is death, not the wages of God for sin. If I'm reading it right, God does not do the killing, sin does. To say God kills people for sinning is akin to saying the doctor kills people for drinking poison. To get us to drink the poison, the evil one must somehow make sin appear good to us. But since sin is not good, 
It is evil, it does not lead to happiness, it leads to death. He has to lie to us, deceive us, confuse us, contort and twist up our mind. He has to con our heart. He does this through pressure put upon our mind and our heart itself. We also see this not just in a general sense with sin, but in a more specific sense with the untrue narratives that each of us come to believe. The evil one comes to all of us, that none of us are immune, with far more subtle lies that are customized for each person's story. One of the main ways he does this that was referred to the last two weeks is through trauma. In both the Gabor Mate categories of capital T trauma that some people experience and small t trauma that all of us experience. Some very helpful things were said about trauma over the last two weeks by both Tyler and Jared. Let me just add one more. Experts in uh, what I would call deliverance ministry in the Catholic tradition, goes by the more ominous title of exorcism, point out that trauma and emotional wounds are often the kind of open door through which the evil one comes into a life. Our wickedness is very tied to our woundedness. They talk about double trauma, where people have the first trauma of, say, sexual abuse, or the early death of a loved one, or a tragic loss, and then the evil one comes in through that kind of open, exposed, raw wound, and then there is a secondary trauma. In full-blown deliverance, this is like a demonic attachment of some kind, but most of the time, or a lot of the time, it's far more common that it's simply the presence of a lie. He comes in when we are most vulnerable to shame and to fear, and he plants a lie in our mind. And if we believe that lie, and if we begin to live into that lie, if we let it into our body, it begins to take over our whole person. Anyone see that new Critics Darling movie, Banshees of Inshirin? Beautiful film, and I'm about to give a minor spoiler. I'm Matt Hughes, you can talk, to me about, talk about me on your podcast later, but if it's that great of a movie, you should have already seen it, you know? It's, um, without giving away too much, you can get this from the trailer. It's essentially about two friends set in Ireland a century ago. The whole thing's kind of a parable of Ireland as a whole, but it's about these two friends, best friends, and inexplicably, one day, one friend rejects the other friend. And the rejected friend is utterly heartbroken. I mean, he's just, you just watch him go through wave after re wave of grief. The pain of rejection, as, as many of you know, particular if it is from a parent or a spouse or a best friend, that is about as deep as pain goes. And you just watch him live this through this traumatic experience. And he's brokenhearted. And the, the friend who's rejected is a little dull, but he's like the nicest person on the whole island. It's like just the nicest person in the village. And then there's this turning point. There's this moment where he's in a conversation with this kind of village idiot kind of character. And they're getting drunk one night. He's so depressed. And the fool in the story has this theory and he says, maybe he rejected you because you're too nice. Maybe you need to be just a little bit mean. Maybe you need to stand up for yourself more to get his attention and that way you can win back your friendship. Without giving anything else away, let me just say he does that and it does not go well at all. I think the movie 
it's a beautiful film, but I think it struck a chord with me just, um, this is embarrassing to say, but because I, I have any, has anybody ever been rejected? Or is that, I never, don't ask that question in public because <laughs> you don't want to be like the one person. But um, recently I, I just went through a, what to me was inexplicable loss of a dear friendship where, I mean, to, to oversimplify a longtime friend basically just said, I, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. No conflict, no like we did this thing. Not, it was just, to me, it was very, very painful. It was one of the most painful things I've ever been through. Or months of just grief and sleepless nights and just carrying sadness in my body. And um, in those months, and still to this day, I would watch come into my mind, my con- the flow of my consciousness, all sorts of kind of interpretations of what I had just experienced. Like, you can't trust people anymore. If he rejected you, what other friend is gonna reject you? You should distance yourself from your other friends. If people actually knew you, they would reject you. They would not wanna be close to you. So you have to guard your vulnerability and don't get too close. Or, yeah, you had an incredible many, many years of deep community in Portland, but you'll never have that again. That was then. Now you have to live a more isolated life. All of these thoughts, from wherever they came, have come in and through my mind many times. Can you imagine what what would happen? And, And they're not true. They all have enough truth in them to be believed, but they're not true. But what if I were to believe them? Even just one. That level of vulnerability is not safe. You can get close, but not that close. What if I were to believe that? What if I were then to live that out in my body? Let that put boundaries around the very thing I was made for, deep relationship with God and community? What if I were to let that in my body? What would it do to me? Who would I become? Who would I be a year from now, a decade from now, a half a century from now? You see... What we believe matters. This happens all the time. A lie is implanted in our mind, often in a time of great pain and suffering. And if we believe it, if we give it airplay, if we put our trust in it, if we begin to live as if it is true, the tragic result is always death and not life. You see, a key insight that Western Christians um, easily miss. Remember the first time I read this, I was like, wait, what? Record scratch is that in Christian theology, due to Adam and Eve's fall, our whole person is fallen into sin. Soul, mind, and body. Not just our heart and our body, which we kind of get at an intuitive level. Like I kind of get my body, like I'm getting older. My body is starting to die, very slowly, hopefully. (laughs) But I get the idea that my body is fallen, that my sexual energies have become somehow distorted by the fall, that my fear impulse put in my body as a a loving gift from God to keep me alive is somehow way out of whack. There are multiple things in my body that are fallen and in need of salvation. I even get that in my heart. Like I grew up hearing Jeremiah, the heart is desperately wicked. You don't have to convince me of that. Like, uh, Like I know there's stuff in my heart that is dark and is ugly. But somehow, it's easy for me to think that my mind, on the other hand, is a good post-Enlightenment Western European. My mind is perfectly rational, 
totally not fallen. I just think objectively about everything, not influenced by emotion or sin or the fall at all, just perfectly rational thought. That's foolish. Our mind is just as fallen and corrupted and diseased by sin as our heart and our body and just as in need of salvation. It's the only way we can explain how so many brilliant people can be so utterly depraved and lost. How even the most educated, intelligent, sophisticated, experienced people in the world can be so clearly deluded in their thinking and do utterly foolish things. Professing to be wise, they became fools, as Romans 1 has it. Because all of us is fallen and all of us, soul, mind, and body, must be saved, healed, and restored by Jesus. This has got to be why Jesus comes as a rabbi. At least part of the reason, right? As a rabbi, as a teacher. What is a teacher? A teacher is a truth teller. And what does Jesus call for? Apprentices, disciples, students. To what? To believe that can be translated to put their trust in his vision of reality, to trade in our old mental maps for new ones. Because the world then and now is full of people who are literally dying or in bondage because of a lack of truth. As the Hebrew prophet Hosea put it, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. As a simple example, think of how many millions of people suffered and died down through human history because doctors did not yet understand or have knowledge of the concept of germs and the importance of a simple practice like hand washing. Jesus comes to bring knowledge of reality as it is, of what is good and what is evil, what is true and what is a lie, what is beautiful and what is ugly what it means to be truly human, who we are, who you as an individual are too, and ultimately to teach us who God is, the ultimate revelation of what is at the center of the universe and all reality, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, a community of self-giving, joyful, compassionate, exuberant, agape love. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Why? Because we become like our mental vision of God or whatever is ultimate, be it a community of love that we call Father, Son, and Spirit, or Allah, or Krishna, or career, or success, or beauty, or sexuality, or sexual identity, or fame, or money, or you feel power, you fill in the blank. We become like whatever or whoever we think is at the center of the meaning and purpose of life. Jesus comes to reveal to us ultimately the beauty of who God is, the Father, and in turn to reset the trajectory of our life from one in route to death to one in route to what he called eternal life. The savior of the world comes as a teacher. Now, what does all of this mean for our discipleship to Jesus and our spiritual formation into, as Dr. Robert Mulholland once put it, the image of Christ for the sake of others? Put another way, if that is what Jesus has done, what do we do in response? If that's his part as our rabbi, what's our part as his apprentices or disciples? Well, in Scripture's telling of the story, the mind is where we first turned away from God, and therefore it is where we must take our first steps to return home to the God for whom we were made to live for and love. 
This involves the slow and steady replacement of lies with truth, of thoughts that do not conform to the reality and beauty of God and his good intentions with those that do. A process, and it is a process, that the Apostle Paul calls the renewal of the mind. All right, here it is, the mandatory Willard quote. I had three in the original draft, but I've had your emails. I recognize I have a little bit of a problem, so we cut it down to one, all right? Enjoy it. As we first turned away from God in our thoughts, so it is that in our thoughts that the first movements toward the renovation of the heart occur. Thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. The process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing those destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. This is a process that I think is best summed up by Jesus' invitation to repent and believe. That word repent is metanoia in Greek and it can be translated to change your mind or one other paraphrase is to rethink reality. The word believe is pistis in Greek. It does not just mean mental assent or to rearrange the furniture of your mind or imagination to kind of match the floor plan of Jesus. It means to put your trust, your confidence, your whole life reliance in Jesus himself, not just his death on your behalf, in all of him, from Matthew 1 to Matthew 28, from John 1 to John 21, all of Jesus, his life, the stories about his life, his teachings about everything from money to judgment to sex to gender to the body to relationships to power to humility to life in the secret place with the Father, all to put your trust, your reliance in all of him. I would, I would paraphrase, repent and believe as rethink everything you think you know about and put your trust and confidence in Jesus to lead you to a happy and true life with God. I used to think that repent and belief was a one-time thing that you did at conversion. Now I've come to believe, and I could be wrong here, I think it's the whole enchilada. I think this word believe is used over and over by Jesus himself, over a hundred times in the Gospel of John alone. This is not a one-time event, but a lifelong process of discipleship. I think of Paul in Colossians 3, this magisterial passage, right after saying, set your mind on the things above, where you are seated in heavenly places with Christ, not on the things of this earth. What does Paul say? You have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in what? Knowledge, in the image of its creator. Notice, is being renewed in knowledge, present tense, ongoing. Some, I read a New Testament professor the other day who said this can be translated, keep putting off and keep putting on. Keep putting off all of the lies, all of the thought patterns, all of the narrative interpretations, all of the ideas and ideologies that belong to your old self and the world around you that is dying, the city around you that is dying and keep putting on the truth of Jesus, his words, his teaching, his vision, his reality, the world that is coming to birth in and through him and his bride. Repent and believe. 
is a process that never ends the side of death. It just goes deeper and deeper into our core. I've used this paradigm before, but there's a Catholic theologian who writes about three levels of belief, public, private, and core. Public belief is what you say you believe, but you don't actually believe it. It's Harvey Weinstein with his women's rights pin on his lapel two weeks before he was outed at the Oscars, I think it was. It's Tucker Carson's support of former President Trump before he was outed this last week by the New York Times. Private belief is what you think you believe. Core belief is what you actually believe. But we often don't realize until it's tested by pain and suffering. For example, we might not think that we get our identity and self-worth from our job until we're laid off. Then we find out. We might not think that we get our identity and self-worth from being the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church. <laughs> Hypothetical scenario. <laughs> or from preaching or from our community until all of that is stripped away and then holy cow, what you actually believe, dang. We might not think that we get our happiness from health until we get sick. I and mean, we could just go on and on and on. Key insight here is we violate our public and our private beliefs all of the time, but we never violate our core beliefs. Um, silly example, I have a core belief deep in my body that punching myself in the face would be a stupid idea, that it would lead to pain. So you know what? I never punch myself in the face. I'm not, I'm so mature, I'm not even tempted. No matter how bad I feel about myself, no matter how much shame I deal with that I have to pray through to Jesus, I, I just, I, ne I don't ever sit there and think, don't punch yourself in the face, I know you wanna do it, don't do it, don't do it, the pastor said it's wrong, don't punch. It's foolish, because I have a core belief that it would do nothing but cause me harm. Every time you are tempted, and you feel that pull in your heart, and do not feel shamed by that. We are all in this together, holy cow. That is a loving sign from your body, from your heart, from the deep recesses of your person, that in that area, whatever it is, you have yet to come to believe what Jesus says. Jesus' teaching, it's yet to get into the core. You might say with your mind, I know what the right thing to believe is. Great, that's where we start you don't yet believe in in the deepest recess of your body. One way to think about discipleship to Jesus is a lifetime of getting what you know in your head and even know in your heart deep into the core of your being. An apprentice of Jesus who's, is one whose life goal is to get the teachings and truth of Jesus, our rabbi, and more deep into our core belief system to live and navigate life by his mental maps of reality, and as a result, to flourish and thrive in a living connection to God and his kingdom of love. We'll talk next week more about the pragmatics or the practice of the renewal of the mind. How do we do this? For today, let me give you a very high-level synopsis. We fill our mind as much as we possibly can with the person and gospel and teachings of Jesus the Christ. We bring our mind back to him and his word over and over again all through the day and the week and our life. 
It's like our mind is a compass and Jesus is true north. No matter what highs and lows and ups and downs and twists and turns we face, we come back to our true north. We come back in our mind to Jesus. This is very hard at first, particularly in the day of age of the iPhone and dropping attention spans and all of mental illness, all of it. But it gets nothing but easier because as we think about God and his beauty, we can't help but want to think more about God and his beauty. And as we think about God and his beauty more and more, we can't help but love and worship him. And as we love and worship him, we can't help but offer ourselves to him at a whole body level in trusting love. And as we offer ourselves to him in trusting love, we can't help but be transformed by his love into persons of love. And as we'll cover next week, we become like what we look at. What we look at. If we look at God, we become like God. If we look at TikTok, next week. <laughs> so, a good place to begin this week is with a very simple practice. You can do it once, you can do it 900 times, of filling your mind with the person of Jesus. Um, there are all sorts of ways to do this. You can do this by reading scripture, especially I think of Paul's letters to the Colossians and the Ephesians or the Philippians or the book of Hebrews, just these gorgeous visions of Christ. Or by slowly reading and rereading the gospel stories about Jesus and just kind of a quiet spirit of contemplation. Or by what previous generations of Christians called beholding prayer. By just directing the gaze of your inner heart on the person and beauty of Jesus in the Trinity. Looking at God looking at you in love. This is incredibly important. Let me just end with this. You know this, but just to remind you, we are all becoming somebody or something. Spiritual formation is not optional. The question is just, who or what are you being spiritually formed into? C.S. Lewis said, we're all on a trajectory to either heaven or hell. That was his kind of interpretation. He said, we're all becoming, quote, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This is why if you think about most 80 or 90 year olds that you know, they're either the best people you have ever known, quiet, joyful, altruistic, self-giving, kind, content, a blessing, or <laughs> something very different. Cruel, vindictive, bitter, resentment, literally a face distorted by decades of resentment, unforgiveness, and hate. Very few 90-year-olds are what my Gen Z kids would call meh, <laughs> which I think is teenager for mid, or mid's another one, it's, that's mid, dad. Like, wait, is that, does that, Jude, does that mean middle? <laughs> kind of dad, yeah, you know, mid, meh, I'm like, I know how to talk, so I'm trying to learn <laughs> Gen Z, whatever. Most 20-somethings are kind of mid. I don't know a lot of 20-something saints or like, there's some that are pretty bad, but not that bad yet. But most 90-year-olds, they're not mid. They're immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Traject that out and who knows. And the way you can plot your own trajectory is by honest assessment of your mind and your inner life.
Show me the contours of your inner life as it is right now, and I will show you the character of your outer life in the future. You will become on the outside what you are on the inside. That should not drive you to shame and hiding, but to the feet of Jesus and the community of love. To become a saint with a radiant mind, shot through with the love and joy and peace of Christ. You do not have to be a brilliant philosopher. I am certainly not. Just a few years ago, just a few days ago, and I'll end here, a friend of mine told me about the tragic loss of his dad, who was a pastor, at just 51 years of age from a, a rare disease. His dad got really sick, and um, his son left uh, his graduate program to go be by his dad's side for the last few weeks of his life. He was there two weeks in his bedroom, just sat in his bedroom. And toward the end, he got up to go out and get some lunch. And as he was walking out the door, his dad regained consciousness for a fleeting moment, made eye contact, grabbed him by the arm, and his dad's last words with joy on his face were, joy unspeakable. And I, my friend told me this story when I just said, man, has it been really traumatic to lose your dad at just 51 years old? And he said, yeah. But his last words to me were, joy unspeakable. Fill your mind with Christ, his life, the beauty of his person. There's nothing more beautiful in the universe. His words, direct your mind to him all through the day and the week ahead. Let a mind set and all the chaos around on Christ. Let it form you into the kind of person who one day, as you are dying, can say with a genuine heart, joy unspeakable.